Okay. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to the very last page. If you don't, you can find it in your order of worship. You should be able to find the text. I'm just going to read to you a couple, the first two verses of what we'll be talking about today, and then we'll continue. So I say to you, hear the word of God. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning as we um, wrap up a whole year in the book of Revelation, having looked at every single passage, every chapter, I pray that you would um, bring it home today, that you would apply it to our hearts and our lives. I pray for those who have yet to believe that you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray for myself that you would be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been through, if, you, if, you, if this is your first time visiting, you're a little bit late. Um, we've been looking this whole year at the book of Revelation, and today is the very last passage that we'll look at. It's the last passage in the book. And the, the passage that we're going to look at today, um, to help you understand it, I think it'd be, it's good if you kept in mind uh, the whole idea of vacationing. And what I mean by that is, is everyone knows you, you need to, to have a decent plan if you're going to have a decent vacation, but more than having a decent plan for going on vacation, at least in my experience, uh, you need to have a decent plan for coming home from vacation. In other words, I, if, it's, if it's up to me only to plan vacation or plan coming home, I wouldn't even go on vacation. And the reason is, is because I feel like when I get home, I'm just punished. I feel like when I get home, I'm just overwhelmed by tasks. I'm overwhelmed by emails, everything. However, I happen to be married to a very good planner who likes to go on vacation sometimes. In other words, when you go on vacation, if you're gone for a long time, what's important is when you come home, what do you do when you get home? How do you reintegrate back into life? And so in our family, I remember a couple of years ago, we went to, um, on this 2,500-mile road trip, we went to Crater Lake and then Yosemite and Grand Canyon and back up through Bryce Canyon. And about the time we hit Oregon, if you'd have been in my seat and you looked over, what you'd have seen was my wife with a pad of paper. And she's making lists for people to do when they get home. And so right as we're pulling in the driveway, everyone gets their list. <laughs> Tommy, you're responsible for the camping equipment. Da, 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 da. Mercy, you're responsible for taking the dogs. I mean, everyone knows exactly what they're going to do. Because you've got to, at the end of the day, we all know vacation ends. You've got to come home. And why wouldn't you be prepared to actually be at home? Now, what does that have to do with the book of Revelation? Well, it has to do everything with the book of Revelation because up to this point in the book of Revelation, you know, we've looked at, you know, this letters to the seven churches and it ends, John's vision ends with this vision of heaven. And in fact, he says, I saw a new heavens and new earth. And he said, I saw the city of God and it was this uh, city shaped like a temple that was like a garden. It was, it was rapturous, right? So we're there. And now this week, John says, you don't live there right now. In other words, the last half of the book of, of this chapter is what is, in some sense, John's checklist for coming back home. He's taken us up to see this vision of heaven, but he realizes that we actually have to live on earth down here. 
And since we have to live down here, just like my wife would make a list of us coming back from vacation, he's made a list, if you will, of how we need to be prepared to actually live out um, in, the, in the context of the rest, in the context of these visions that we've seen. And so that's what we're going to look at today, is basically um, what does it mean to actually live this stuff out after John has sort of taken us to, to heaven and back. Before we do that, I thought it would be good to revisit um, what kind of book Revelation is. And the reason that's important is because of the kind of literature determines you know, what we're supposed to do with it in the first place. If you remember first, the book of Revelation is a letter. It's a letter to seven churches, right? And I think it's chapter 1, verse 4. John says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now why that's important is because almost every letter in the New Testament was written to address some particular problem in a church. In other words, no one wrote a letter and said, you know, I'm just writing you guys a letter, and I'll, what I'm going to include in the letter is stuff that's going to be relevant to you two or 3,000 years from now. You never, you didn't. You wrote a letter because there was some specific problem that a church was going through. So whether it was Paul or someone else, they would write a letter to that church. Same thing with John. And so what's the problem in the book of Revelation? Remember, at least the seven churches, which are sort of symbolic for all churches, living in the context of the Roman Empire that was either uh, simultaneously crushing them or luring them away from the faith. The problem in the book of Revelation is that churches had, had begun to fail to be outwardly faced. And by that, what I mean is they, instead of, of bearing witness to this thing we call the gospel, they sort of just were like the rest of the culture. They were becoming that way. In other words, instead of telling people about Jesus, instead of engaging, they became involved in almost everything else, either along with the Roman culture or just sort of like going along to get along. Remember, five of the churches were really bad, actually. Two of them were trying. And to those two churches that were trying, Jesus encouraged them. To the five churches that weren't doing that well, Jesus actually admonished them or he, or he corrected them. He had, for some of them, he had really harsh words. And so it's a letter, first of all, the book of Revelation is, and it addresses a problem. But it's also an apocalypse, right? The word revelation in Greek is, means, is apocalypse. And all you need to know to understand what an apocalypse is, is to have seen The Wizard of Oz yesterday, right? I know some of you did. I saw it on Facebook. I watched it too. How, what does The Wizard of Oz have to do with Apocalypse. Well, there's a couple different ways you could look at it, but maybe the easiest way is the very end. Remember the the great and powerful Oz says if they bring the witch's broom back to him, that they'll send Dorothy home. And they bring the witch's broom back. She's killed the witch. And he says, the great and powerful Oz will not see you today. And she's like, dude, I have the broom right here. And he says, Leave! And there's a great line. She says, if you really were great and powerful, you'd keep your promises. And right about that time, you see little Toto scurrying over, and he grabs the curtain, and he pulls it back. And what you see behind the curtain is the reality. And what the reality is, is the great and powerful Oz is really just this frail old man. When you think of the apocalypse in the book of Revelation, it's like that, only the exact opposite. You see, when you look at the world around us and you say, well, gosh, Jesus isn't, it must not be doing anything. Things are really hard and things are bad. And, you know, the gospel's a tough thing. What's going on? Well, in the book of Revelation, what John is doing is he's also pulling back a curtain. 
You see, so on one hand, the what the world sees, and they say, Christianity isn't that big, and Jesus isn't all that important. What John does when he pulls it back, you see that instead of a frail, out-of-work carpenter, what you see is a lion. A lion from the tribe of Judah who is conquered. What you see is the, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You see that the, the source of all creation is behind the curtain. That's what the book of Revelation, when it uses the term apocalypse, that's what apocalypse is. It's in, an apocalypse was given, if, if letters were written to, to address problems, the apocalyptic literature was actually addressed to solve problems or at least to encourage people. And what, by that, I mean that, that what apocalyptic literature did was say that God is going to show justice to oppressors someday, more or less. And then finally, so it was a letter, it was an apocalypse, but also, and more importantly, maybe for today, is that it was a prophecy. And you've heard me say over and over, if you've been here for the last year, that we tend to think of prophecy in terms of things that are predicted for the future that we just need to figure out the predictions and we need to look for their fulfillment. But the reality of prophecy in the Bible, at least, is prophecy is actually given in order to get some kind of action out of us. It begs for some kind of behavioral change. In other words, when you look at the Old Testament, they're, telling, they're giving uh, prophecies in order for people to repent of their sins or to have faith or to believe in God or something. And so the whole book of Revelation, John says, is a prophecy, which means it wants us to do something. It wants us to act upon something. And the two things you've heard me say, it wants us to believe the gospel, first of all. Remember I told you the purpose is that Jesus has won in the past. When he went to the cross, he did everything necessary to pay for our sins. He will win in the future when he comes to judge the world, but he's also winning right now. The book of Revelation wants us to believe that, but it also wants us to act. And it's been encouraging us over and over and over again that we as a church, that all churches, we need to be outwardly faced. And and by that, I simply mean we need to be addressing the world with the gospel, or at least this thing Christians call the gospel. So, it's interesting, in the, at the end here, remember I said there's a list, that my wife makes a list when we come back from vacation? In a sense, the, the last half of the chap, last chapter of Revelation is just a list. It's, John is sort of bringing us home. He's, he's landing the airplane, if you will, and as he's bringing us home, he's going to give us five exhortations. And it's funny because Jamie and I were talking this week. I mean, I sat down in his office and I said, you know, I, give me a different word for exhortation. And we went on, you know, the thesaurus.com, and I used directives and admonitions, and I used everything. And I came in yesterday afternoon, and I changed it all back to exhortation. Because it was the only word that seemed to really work here. And here's what I mean by that. It's, it's not, what an exhortation is, it's not, it's not a command. It's not law. It's not like the Ten Commandments where John says, you must do this or else. But it's, it's more than just encouragement. He doesn't say, well, you know, this is a good idea. What an exhortation is, it's sort of like when I was in the army. And if you've ever been in the, the military, you'll know this. Imagine you're, you're, you're in your uniform and you're a little private and you're standing there and the platoon sergeant comes walking down and he's looking at you up and down and he stops in front of you. He says, Ranger Allen, if I were you, I'd get a little more polish on those boots. And then he just turns and he keeps walking. Now, is that a command? It's not. He, didn't, he said, well, if I was, oh, I'm not him, so I guess I won't do it. Everyone knows, while that's not a command, it would be in your best interest to, to follow that suggestion. And that's what an exhortation is. So when, John, when I say that John gives you five exhortations, 
What he's saying here is this isn't a command at some level, like the law, like the law of Moses, but it would be in your best interest to heed what he says. Or it would be foolish to not heed what he says. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, simply five exhortations. And so what's the first exhortation? Look at um, verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, it says, And he said to me, these, are the word, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So what's the first exhortation? It's simply this. It's to, to, to trust and obey. In other words, John has given 21 and a half chapters of information about Jesus. And the, now he's saying, now that we're getting to the end, what the first thing I need to tell you to do is you need to trust me. The words that I've given you are trustworthy and true. And I'm sure I've told you before, the whole time my children were growing up, I would say things like, I'd say, all right, everyone get in the car. Where are we going? God, do you trust me? Mm. And 100% of the time when I did that, it would be someplace like Dairy Queen. It would always be something fun. And yet, always. All right, everyone get in the car. Where are we going? Trust me? Mm-mm. Even though I have a 100% track record. I know how God feels. <laughs> he's saying the first thing he says when he's land in the plane, if you will, is the words that I've given you are trustworthy and true. You need to believe them. And it reminded me, I was thinking about it last night, the, the, the second Matrix movie. You don't need to have seen that movie to get this. Uh, basically, there's a war. The machines are trying to kill all of humanity. Right? That's, some of you are going, man, I can't wait to see that. Um, machines are trying to kill humanity, and there's basically the military commander, and then there's this guy named Morpheus. And the military is trying to figure out, how do we keep the machines from killing everybody? And Morpheus says, a savior is coming. His name is Neo. We need to just trust that and believe that when he gets here, he will conquer the machines. And the commander says, Morpheus, everyone doesn't believe what you believe. And Morpheus says, my belief system doesn't necessitate that. In other words, Morpheus says to him, just because you don't believe it doesn't mean that it's not true. There's a sense in which that's what John is saying here. These words are trustworthy and true, or at least the words given to John. But also, he says, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. If you doubted what I've said about prophecy up to this point in the book, that it's demanding some kind of action from you, it, that's what it says right here. He says it to John. He doesn't say, blessed are the one who reads the prophecy, blessed are the one who figures out what this is going to mean in the future. He says, blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy. In other words, blessed is the one who obeys the words of this prophecy. And what are the words of this prophecy continually pushing us to do? To engage the world with this thing called the gospel. To not be afraid. To trust Jesus. And so it, it, I was reading a, a uh, devotional this week, and I've been actually been reading it all during Advent by a guy named Richard Rohr. He was a Catholic guy, and he made an interesting comment this week, at least in one of the texts. He said that the Bible's bias is almost always toward action. In, in other words, you see very little passivity in, in, in the Bible. The Bible's always calling us to do something, calling us to believe, calling us to faith, calling us to something, but it's, it never calls us to just do nothing. 
Even when it tells us to be quiet, God says, be still. I mean, he's telling us to be something, to do something. And so what's, that's the first exhortation. What's the second one? The second exhortation, listen to verses 8 through 10. It says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. So what's the second exhortation? Um, If the first one is to trust and obey, the second exhortation is to worship and proclaim. Right, so John, this has happened before, which it makes sense. I mean, you see an angel, you've not seen it before, and you don't know all the stuff about heaven. So the angel comes and is talking to him, and John just falls down to worship. And the angel says, don't do that. Worship God. One of the themes, right, I've told you before, this is not going to happen, by the way, that we could start the book of Revelation over again in January and do it completely differently. One of the big themes throughout the book of Revelation has to do with worship. What does it mean to worship? What does it look like to worship? What, is it, what do all these things, you know, we've seen every tribe, tongue, and nation standing around the throne worshiping. We looked last week at, about how the new heavens and new earth are basically Eden restored. And in Eden, your work was worship. And so worship is primary in the book of Revelation. It's primary in all of the gospel. But also in verse 10, how, where do I get proclaim out of that? Right? Look at verse 10 where he says, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Well, if you remember at the end of the book of Daniel, Daniel's given these prophecies, and God tells Daniel, seal it up. In other words, seal it up because I'm not ready for everything to be revealed to the world. When I'm ready, then we'll talk. But right now, Daniel, I want you to seal up the information I've given you. Don't disseminate it. And now we've gotten to the end of the book of Revelation, and God says to John... Don't seal it. In other words, I've given you every single thing there is to know in in order for you to to be saved, in order for you to live out the gospel, for you to understand the gospel. I've given it to you. Now, don't keep that to yourself, but in fact, unseal it, which uh, de facto means spread it around. Let Let it out. Let it loose. Now, what has he given him up to this point? The book of Revelation, among other things is about the person and work of Jesus Christ primarily. Right? That Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. He rose again from the dead and then comes to us by his spirit. And we live it out. And we proclaim that to those around us. We tell them. that. Notice what he says that at the end of this verse 10. He says, the time is near. He says, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. And you've heard me say over and over again, There is coming a time when there is no more time. There is coming a time when there is no more time. As long as you live and breathe, you have time to consider this thing we call the gospel. But but when, when your life is over, the time is up. If Jesus comes back before that time, the time is up. And so John says, tell people the gospel now because the time is near. There is coming a time when there is no more time. And then he, he, he slides from, from worshiping and proclaiming as an exhortation to actually um, something I hope you've heard before here. The third exhortation is simply this. It's be what you are. Be what you are. Let me read that to you. Verses 11 and 12. 
He says, let the evildoers still do evil, let the filthy still, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. And then in verse 12, he says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. So what, what do I mean by this? If you just read this verse, this is like sort of controversial if you look at commentators. Because they say, how can, how can God or Jesus or John or the angel, whoever's speaking here, how can they just ad- advocate for people to be bad? You know, basically say, let the filthy be filthy and let the righteous do what is righteous. Well, if you're familiar with the rest of the New Testament, what you see is, is I think, some clarity. Because in the rest of the New Testament, what you see is this, that Jesus not only lives the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died, but when you put your trust in Jesus, what happens at that point is all of your sins, all of the badness, all of your guilt is given to him, is imputed or credited to him, and all of his goodness or his righteousness is actually credited to your account. And so at that point, if you're reading through the Apostle Paul, he lays that out, and then at that point, he says, okay, all the, the goodness and righteousness of Jesus has been credited to your account. Now, just go be what you are. In other words, the New Testament almost never just says, be good. Jesus definitely never says, be good. In fact, Jesus most often preaches against goodness, or at least against self-righteousness. Instead, what you hear preached in the New Testament is not, be good, but trust Jesus and now be what you are. If you trusted Jesus, that means your heart has changed. Be what you are. If you trusted Jesus, that means you have a different lens through which you view the world. Now just be what you are. Now the question is, why would he say to the others, he says, you know, to, to the evildoer, let him still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. I think at some level, it's a call to honesty. And if it's not a call to honesty, the question is, why not? In other, in other words, he's saying, if, if, you're, if you don't believe this stuff, why are you trying to be good? Why are you acting like that's important? Be what you are. You see, he doesn't say be good because at the end he says, let the righteous still do what is right. Let, them be, let the holy be what is holy. At, at the end of the day, he's saying to them, be what you are. And I want you to notice this is the second time he said, behold, I am coming soon. The word soon could also be translated as uh, suddenly. But what I wanted to point out to you is not just I am coming suddenly or I am coming soon, but the verb tense there. Jesus doesn't say, I will come someday. As if he's sort of sitting on a throne in heaven and he's just you know, sitting back to having a smoke break, you know, playing some scrabble with the angels until God says, all right, now's the time. Grab your D-bag. You're deploying right now. Go, 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 go. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I will come in the future. He says, I am coming soon. In other words, Jesus, even now, is in the process of returning. Now, does that mean he's in the, you know, somewhere between heaven and here? I don't know. But what it does mean is that all things he's working together to prepare to, to meet the ultimate end, to be ready for his return. And it's happening right now. Jesus is coming right now. It's not that he will come. And that takes us back to the last slide, that there's coming a time when there will be no more time. The question is, where do you stand with him? You know, the, 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 that passage reminded me of, you know, remember one of the themes in the book of Revelation also is the churches that are sort of acting hypocritically, right? Now, on one hand, they go to church and they act like everything, they're, they're churchy and they're, they're, they say all the right words. 
And then they go out into the world and they do all the things that the world does. You know, maybe they sacrifice meat to idols or they, they uh, worship Caesar in a trade guild or something. So there's also a sense in which uh, it's a witness against hypocrisy. And that, when I thought about that, I, whenever I think hypocrisy, I always think of Moby Dick, which I'm sure you do that too. Um, Remember, Ishmael is walking around, he's looking for a place to stay, and he ends up having a bunkmate who's a cannibal named Queequeg. And at some point as he's pondering it, he said, well, I guess at the end of the day, it's better to sleep with a sober cannibal than a drunken Christian. In other words, getting back to being what you are, I think there's a call to honesty there with yourself. The fourth exhortation is this, is not to remember to be what you are, it's to remember whose you are. Remember whose you are. Let me read to you verses 14 and 15. Or let me start at 13. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have a right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the city gates, outsider dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So verse 13 is, is, is um, an Advent verse, if you need an Advent verse for today. When Jesus says, I, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, and he says the first and the last and the beginning and the end, those first two terms are only ever used of God the Father in the Old Testament. So in this, here, what we're seeing is that God now, in the person of the Son, is giving those titles to himself. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. But what's more interesting is what he says, the third couplet there, where he says, I am the beginning and the end. Why is that important? It's because beginning and end doesn't even begin to describe what's communicated there, at least in Greek. In Greek, the words are arche and telos or teleos. And arche means, it doesn't mean just the beginning as, as, as if it were the first in a series. It means the beginning as if everything comes out of me. In, in other words, Jesus says, I, I'm the beginning in the sense that everything that is, is a product of, of my action, that my, my own creative activity. But when he says I'm the end, he's not saying I'm the end in the sense that I'm the last thing. It would almost be better to translate that as destination. In other words, everything came from me and everything is coming back to me. That this one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the, the, the wonder of Christmas is this, is the one who is in charge of all things, who is in control of every molecule in the whole universe, became a baby in order that he might live the life we lived and die the death we died. And for personally, what does that mean? He says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life. It's another call to believe the gospel. That, the, that the, the God who became this baby, who had become the man who would die for us, he says, blessed is the one who believes that, who trusts that, who's washed themselves in the blood of the Lamb. Then you may have access to the tree of life. Remember, we're banned from the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And yet, in the, at the new heavens and new earth, the tree of life is there and everyone has access to it. It's also important to remember who you are corporately. Notice verse 16 he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. 
That's important to catch, especially in the United States, right? In the United States, we tend to be so uh, individualistic and so everything is personal. Like, for example, I've never read a New Testament letter that says, Dear Tommy, Dear Tommy, I know you're having a lot of problems with this and with that. Every letter in the New Testament, they're written to churches. They're written to, to groups of individuals. And what I wanted to just make clear to us is that this book of Revelation as well was written to the churches. So there's a sense in which I'm constantly saying, you know, you need to be outwardly faced. You need to be outwardly faced. But there's also a sense in which as a church, we can't do that unless all of us are in it together. And we rise and fall depending upon whether or not we're able to work together. And that's hard because in a lot of churches, what you see is you don't see a church that's moving in the same direction for the same purpose. What you see is, is a group of, of trustees and a group of elders and a group of deacons and a group of this and a group of that. And everyone has their own agenda. And at the end of the day, what's supposed to happen, what should happen, is the church moving all in the same direction. I think Jesus is calling us to that corporately. Also, in your darkest moments, you need to remember whose you are. Notice the last part of that. He says, I'm the root and the descendant of David and the bright morning star. Now, it shouldn't surprise us to hear Jesus say, I'm the descendant of David, right? That's what we learned that, that uh, Joseph and Mary, respectively, were, were descendants of David Messiah would be descendant of David so there's a sense in which he's saying kept my promise but you have to wonder why he put these two things at the end I mean Jesus could have said anything right for one he's Jesus and it's the last thing he's going to say in the last book of the Bible he could have used any of the thousands of titles in the Old Testament why did he use these two he says I'm, I'm the descendant of David but notice he also said I'm the root of David in other words, I, he came from the line of David, humanly speaking, on one hand. On the other hand, he's saying that David actually came from me. That the plan that was put in motion before the foundation of the world to save you through one of David's sons actually came from me. In other words, I've loved you from the beginning of time. And why do we, we need to, to remember whose we are in the midst of our darkest moments i think the, that's why jesus says the last thing he says here is i'm the bright morning star especially in the ancient near east we don't we tend to live in cities now so we can't see the stars but if you've ever been someplace where it gets dark the morning star was that that star that would appear right at, at, at the peak of evening when it just got pitch black and you didn't think it could get any darker then out of nowhere you'll see the morning star it's usually venus by the way it's usually in the east. And what the morning star would have reminded the ancients of is this. It would have reminded them that no matter how dark it gets, because that star has appeared, we can be assured that morning is coming. And when Jesus, the last thing he says to us before he, he takes off is, I am the bright morning star. And he says it in the context of churches, the seven churches who are struggling and being persecuted. No matter how dark it gets, as long as you can still see me, you know that it will be okay in the end. Do you believe that? You believe it or you don't believe it to the extent that you worry, to the extent that you try and control things, to the extent you think the world is over because of this or that or the other thing. But what we need to constantly remember is whose we are. We belong to the one who created everything, the one uh, uh, who saves us, and the one who will ultimately make all things right, no matter how dark it seems right now. And finally... There's another call here to be outwardly faced. In verse 17, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and the one who desires to take the water of life 
without price. Now, it's almost easy if you, if you ask someone just on an initial reading, well, who are they, what, is, what are they saying there? When it says, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. We, we, your gut, my guess is, mine would be to say, well, they're saying, Jesus, come back. Come, Lord Jesus. That's not what they're saying here. Because the target audience for that, that, that come is defined for us right at, at the second part of the verse. He says, the spirit and the bride say come, the one who hears say come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Even at the end of the book, you have an invitation to come to know Jesus. The spirit and the bride, we are the bride, the church is, and the spirit and the bride say come. In other words, they're inviting. And he's saying, now if you've been invited to trust Jesus, come. If you're thirsty, take a big drink. Please come. It's an, it's an invitation to be outwardly faced. And then finally, the last exhortation we have here is simply don't or do not verse 18 he says i warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds to them god will add to him the plagues described in this book and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy god will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book so what is what's being said here well, it's pretty simple, right? He says, if anyone adds to the words of this prophecy, then I will add to him the plagues that you find in this book and more. And if anyone takes away from this prophecy, uh, also they will lose access to the tree of life. Which, by the way, those are addressed to church people, people who at least assume that they have access to the tree of life. What's the point here? The point here is that what the testimony that has been given in the book of Revelation, what he's saying is that's enough. You don't, need, you, you don't need more than that, and you definitely don't need less than that. And what's the testimony of the book of Revelation? It has everything to do with the person and work of Jesus. And if you've, you've heard me say it once, you've heard me say it a million times, that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. What do I mean by that? Jesus plus going to church? Nothing. Jesus plus being a good person? Nothing. Jesus plus reading your Bible? Nothing. Jesus plus doing good works? Nothing, 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 nothing. Nothing can save you except for Jesus himself. And anything you try to add to that negates the fact that he has completely uh, done all of the work for us. And to take away, of course, would be, would be I hope, self-obvious, that you need at least the person and work of Jesus to save you from your sins. And then the last, one of the last things he says is, Behold, I am coming soon. If you want to understand what's really important to someone, listen to what they repeat. And what does Jesus repeat several times in this last part of the book? Is, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. And so the question is, where do you stand with him? Where do you stand with Jesus as you go into this Advent season? Have you trusted him for the forgiveness of your sins? If you're here and you're a Christian, the question is, how much have you been trying to add things to Jesus? Like, what are you adding to Jesus? What do you, need, do you think you need to do in order to be more loved by him? Because the answer is nothing. So those are the five exhortations. And the last thing is that we have here is simply a conclusion. And on one hand, it's just a standard concluding thing that you would see in any letter in the New Testament, right? John says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. But it also says something to what we need as people. 
At the end of the day, while, the, while we're called to action, we're called to faith, at the end of the day, we also need grace by which to do it. And what grace is, is the unmerited favor of God. And where you find that is in the person and work of Jesus. And so the last thing, I'll read it, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And that's it. So why don't we... Uh, When I pray, let me pray. Father, I just pray that you would, um, you would apply these things. I mean, there's so, we, every sermon that I've talked about this year, it seems like could have been spread out into four or five. And I pray that you would use these, uh, these messages to also to, to, to goad us on to further study, but also uh, just to apply the gospel to our heart, that Jesus has won and Jesus will win, and that Jesus is winning even now. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen. If you're able